Hey everyone, welcome to another ARCS chat. My name is Robin Bauer Kilgo. I am the Association Manager for ARCS. I'm just going to say a couple of quick things about some upcoming programming for ARCS and some tech things and then hand them right over to our ARCS chat host. Um, just as a reminder for ARCS chat, we are on YouTube. So if you want to play along in the comment section, uh, please feel free to sign in with your YouTube or your Gmail or your Google account. And that way you'll be able to actually use the comment field in there. We do want interaction with you all. So please do so if you want to. Um, there is also a slight delay between our actual doing this recording and beaming it out to you. So just be aware of that as well as you're watching it. A couple of quick programming notes for ARCS. Um, we do have some March webinars. They're going to be launched probably next week. So keep an eye on our website, arcsinfo.org, for those webinar announcements. I'm pretty excited about our spring programming, so please keep an eye out for that. And as a final note, also in March, we're going to be sending out our annual membership engagement survey. So if you are an active member of ARCS, which hopefully you are, um, you will get a direct link to fill out that survey. So we encourage you to do so as soon as possible. So without further ado, I'm going to hand this over to our Arcs Chat host, Amanda. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Thanks, Robin. And good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us uh, for another Arcs Chat. I'm here with my co-host, John Rebinette, who I hope is staying nice and warm up in New York City. Um, so today we're discussing a rethinking of our field's data collection practices, specifically with a focus on diversifying the data we have historically collected as repositories of cultural heritage. Now, diversification can take many shapes and include many facets of a museum's work and existence. So to rein us in a bit, we are going to keep the discussion today focused on the changing landscape of the what, how, and why of museum data collection. And joining us today to explore this topic is Francis Lloyd Baines, Head of Collections Information Management at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Uh, and Francis, along with um, some key players in her home, her kitties. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and introduce a little bit about your professional background and kind of how you came into your current work at MIA. Hi, thanks, Amanda. I'd be happy to. And I wanted to just say thank you for inviting me to participate in the conversation today. And before I get started, to begin by acknowledging that I work and live on the stolen ancestral and contemporary homelands of the Dakota, Anishinaabe, and Ho-Chunk nations. Um, we don't have an official land acknowledgement at MIA at the moment, but we are working with the Council of Dakota community members to create a land acknowledgement process rather than a statement. And we're committed to having this be something that goes beyond a statement to something of action that we build with the council. So my background, I'm currently, as Amanda said, the head of collections information management at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I have spent my career working in museums starting from when I was at university um, I've worked in small and large museums, spent the first part of my career really working with objects in collections management and curatorial roles, and did a bit of administrative work, which made me realize that I wasn't really interested in being a museum administrator, so I decided to go back and get a master's in art history, thinking that the curatorial direction was where I wanted to go. While I was doing that, museums were increasingly beginning to use computing for collections management. And I got into doing that as it was being adopted. Um, soon after my master's, I moved to the UK and that experience working with computers landed me my first job in the UK, which was as head of records at the Victoria and Albert Museum. I stayed there for 12 years and oversaw 
the collections information system, collections management procedures, and the central inventory. And that's really where my focus of working exclusively with collections information began. So I stopped working with objects and just was working with the collections from then. So when I came back to the US, I spent a year at the American Swedish Institute here in Minneapolis and worked with them to um, sort of kickstart their collections cataloging process, develop their collections management policy and various procedures. And I've been at MIA for 10 years now and I oversee data standards and development and am a system administrator for our collections information system, TMS, to train users and essentially work to ensure that the data that we gather about the collections is fit for whatever purpose we have, whether that's collections management, sharing content to the web or things we haven't even thought of yet. Excellent, thanks for doing that. It's always nice to kind of hear how colleagues go through their journey and get to where they are today in their career. So as we kind of dive into the conversation today, it'd be good to give a little bit of context. Um, and I think it'd be helpful to outline some of the more common positions that museums are finding themselves in when it comes to addressing the data collection practices today. And I was hoping you could speak a little bit about that. Yes, I'd be happy to. I mean, I think we find ourselves increasingly being called upon to be more transparent about our practices as museums. Um, it's clearly recognized that museums are not as diverse and representative of our communities, particularly our local communities, that we don't have staff diversity, we don't have board level diversity, and that our artists and collections are not as diverse as they could be in many cases. So the calls for that transparency and, and increasing our diversity is coming from the public, from our funders, specifically asking us questions about our practices and who we employ and who we serve. Um, with the public, uh, Culture Track has been addressing, and this with questions, each is, I know in the 2017 and their recent 2020 um, reports, asking people specifically how they feel about museums and a lot of feedback has come back, which which support the anecdotal evidence that you know, that diversity is really important. And having museums be reflective of the people who are our audience being very important. Um, Latanya Autry and Mike Markowski, of course, you know, helped us understand that museums are not neutral. And we are learning more and more that our passivity of uh, thinking that we don't have a part to play in what's going on in society around us essentially means that we show that we support the status quo. And I don't think that's the case, particularly when it comes to understanding you know, how white supremacy culture works within the context of the art world and museums in particular. Um, we are within museums understanding more and more that we've been complicit in embedding a lot of the myths around white Western supremacist culture, for example, you know, only collecting and displaying white male artworks when there's a you know an amazing array of work by women artists and, and artists of different ethnicities, and you know, presenting the idea that native cultures are moribund, that they're dead and not you know vibrant living cultures out there. Mm. 
Yeah, and we'll talk about, we'll get into this a little bit later, but I also think in terms of museums uh, historically having this position of authority and, and power when it comes to sharing the histories they've collected and kind of being that, um, that voice that speaks for them is, and you've mentioned this in some of the articles that you've written in, in 2019 about diversifying data, uh, that there's a giving up of that power going through this process when we start to critically think about the data we're collecting. Um, to allow those other voices to speak for themselves as well. Uh, so I'm curious if you could share a little bit about how Mia kind of got into the position that they're in now when it comes to looking at the data they've historically collected and kind of what the impetus was at your organization. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Organizationally, Mia began to do a lot of work around diversity in the sort of mid 2010s, um, seriously looking at what was happening institutionally inside the institution around diversity, equity, access, and inclusion. And initially it took the form of staff thinking about how, how we deal with you know, our, our implicit biases and understanding questions around DEAI issues, how it works, how it embeds in our lives and in, in, you know, shows up in our work and in our personal engagements. Um, the Guerrilla Girls came to Mia in late 2015 and 2016 and did an intervention highlighting the number of women represented in the permanent collection at that time. Uh, we didn't have enough documentation to be able to say this is the total range of female artists in the collection, which was, um, we'd been capturing that information, but we didn't have enough information to say that it was complete. And so it showed up some real gaps in the way we were documenting, you know, even the, the sort of gender binary that existed. And in the meantime, we were participating in uh, things like Max, Mass Action, the Museums as a Site for Social Action Program, doing a lot of workshops, creating opportunities for staff, and seeing others in the community begin the process of really grappling with the collections-focused thinking around, okay, well, how does this play play out and show up in our collections documentation. So in 2016, I saw Terry Anderson and Emily Hoff from the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture give a presentation at the TMS Users Conference Collective Imagination called Building an Inclusive Database Cataloging Race, Gender, Sexuality, and Other Identities. And that got the ball rolling, but, but thinking about how that would work in MIA, I wasn't really clear. So in 2018, I started a sort of grassroots working group within the museum, some of the staff that were really interested in exploring the idea of how do we document artist identity and how do we reflect diversity in the collections. Um, we began the process thinking about, okay, well, we need to figure out why we're doing this. So defining that why became really important. And then the how and the what would to follow on with that. Um, I was in a position to write the article in, that you mentioned in 2019. And based on that, a number of people from other museums that were also thinking about this came and we had a lot of really great conversations going through all the issues that we were thinking about and not always having a lot of answers, but definitely sharing that process. Um, so the work to to think about how we document diversity came to the conclusion through us that you know, we, we have to ask artists to 
share their identity, to self-identify. So wherever we can, we shouldn't be the authoritative voice. We need to ask people, how do you identify? And then, you know, utilize the information that they share with us. So how do we manage that process? We decided we needed an artist survey and we needed to provide some structure in which people could respond so that we had a balance between people being able to say whatever they wanted, but understanding what they were telling us. And so we thought a framework um, for some terminology with the capability for people just to feed into that and respond on top of that would give us a good balance of that and help us understand what was being shared as well as help people understand that we didn't want to put words into their mouths. We really wanted to know what they wanted to do. So creating a, a survey draft, um, for us, the work really slowed down during the pandemic because the few of us that were working on it at the time had to do other things. And in the meantime, a lot of other museums saw this as an opportunity, particularly following the racial reckoning um, with George Floyd's murder. So taking up the idea that you know this really is important and it is something that we all need to be looking at. So a whole lot more started happening. At the beginning of 2021, a group came together under the umbrella of the Association of Art Museum Curators, and there are about 40 plus museums involved in a conversation around how do we go about, uh, you know, as museums, asking artists for this information, being careful about not only what we ask and how we ask, but then how we care for and steward the information that's shared with us, what it means, what are best practices, and um, so this group, the Artists Demographic Consortium is still meeting. We're pulling together some best practices that we're gonna be sharing with the wider community. Eventually hope to put a survey together that other museums can use and exploring the idea of even a shared repository for that information, although that is fraught with problems. So that may or may not ever really come to be, but, uh, but trying to find an opportunity for really doing some serious collective work and not just sort of what Mia was doing before and other museums, I think just, you know, sort of thinking locally, but really having a broad conversation about it. I have a quick question. Um, mm -hmm. uh, well, it's actually kind of a two-part question. Number one, how are art artists responding to the survey? And also um, how do you manage a survey uh, when either the artists are dead or for artifacts that, um, or the, the, I don't know how do you classify the you know, artifacts that, uh, the, and the representation of artifacts. Um, as far as the artists, not a lot of us are actually sending the survey out yet. Um, Mia has not begun actually sending the survey out because the whole process, we wanted to be really careful about it. And when the AAMC group got together, we sort of put what we'd done on hold to make sure that we could test it against whatever best practices came out. So we'll be revisiting that shortly. So there's a big question about how artists will react. And um, one of the things we wanted to do to address that is to be really clear with artists as we share the surveys as to why we were doing it, what the motivation was, you know, to, to hopefully get their buy-in, to see that it was interesting and important um, and to, encourage them to think that they could trust us. So it is, a, I see it very much as a trust building 
effort, um, but also to make sure that we're clear about the limitations of what we can do. So we feel very strongly that people should not share information with us that they are not comfortable having made public because we do not want to out or other anyone. And we cannot guarantee long-term the safety of that data that's shared because you know maybe everybody is on board now and the systems are in place, but as the data exists, it's not going to go away, but we may not work for the organization anymore. Things will change over time. And so we, we wanna be sure that the artists are protected in the long term. So that's situation we're in now that we haven't had as many conversations with the artists. We haven't really, you know, tried this out. We do need to develop a mindset, I think, where we know that we're not going to please everybody. There's absolutely no way that's going to happen. Um, some people will be think it's great. Some people will be highly offended. We have to decide, I mean, right now the thinking is that it is worth doing. And if that holds true as we move forward with the process, then we'll continue to do it. If there's such an outcry that, you know, we shouldn't be doing this, then we'll have to all reassess our thinking about it. But I think we also feel uncomfortable because the inclination is to have something to say about the diversity of our artists. And we need then a way for the artists to share their thoughts on that. So it, again, it's not us saying what their identity is, it's their owning their identity and sharing it with us and with the public. Um, in terms of people who can't speak for themselves, either because they're not living or because we don't have identified artists for given collections, we have to fall back on best practice around research and understanding the sources of the information, you know, where might inherent bias be existing in a census, for example, that didn't ask questions that we might want or in our assumptions around the people within a given culture who are who were predominantly making a given artifact type within that culture. And, and you know, just acknowledge that we're making presumptions in some cases and that this may not be the case and that it may change as our understanding grows or new information comes to light. So it's it's an issue that I think we're still grappling with, particularly in encyclopedic collections where we have a combination of named living artists, uh, named artists who may not be living anymore and material from objects with no known identified <coughs> um, and how we, you know, how can we as museums say, well, this is, you know, our collection is made up of X works by, you know, X percentage of presumed female makers. And, you know, so we think we have to have a complete picture in order for that to be the case, but but do we need to create that complete picture and how far do we go? I, there are a lot of questions still to explore there. John, I'm curious, Francis has been name dropping some excellent resources. Have we been dropping those in the chat because we can share those with audience members as well? Yeah, we'll we'll definitely uh, get them in the chat, and we'll uh, also have them in the um, the this description, description. the podcast and YouTube description uh, as well. Let me uh, let me get those up right now. Okay, and how is the chat going? Do you have any questions coming in just yet? Nothing yet. I think uh, Francis is not knocking it out of the park right now. So yeah. <laughs> 
we encourage um, anyone who's listening to go ahead and if you have questions specific to your organization or that you're exploring to go ahead and drop them in. We'll do our best to address them throughout the talk today um, and maybe share some additional resources if there, if there are any available. <laughs> so I'm curious, Princess, what we've talked a little bit, well, a couple of things. I wanna to touch on flexibility because I think you've covered a little bit of what that might look like or um, started to address that in what you just covered. But I also want to talk a little bit about what the data is that your institution has chosen to start collecting and, and why and what the value has been in assembling this information now and, why, and kind of explore a little bit why we haven't done that historically. Sure, I think uh, that question of Flexibility is really important, as I said, you know, doing research around even the language that is being used to describe identity. Um, it's shifting all the time. Uh, we know from, from understanding, you know, the diverse nature of humanity that our identities shift and change over time. So someone's identity will potentially be changing dramatically. And Thinking that you know we can document it once and be done uh, is not going to work when we are you know dealing with something as fluid both as language and identity itself. So, so we need to have a mindset that is flexible to to understand that that is the case that you know it's not it's not really a rigid definition that can be applied and then walk away from that application. We need to build in flexibility in our processes, in our thinking, in our systems, in our capability to record language as it changes. So that all needs to be considered as we are, you know, moving forward to put structures in place. So, you know, we need to be in a position, for example, to know that if we tie the information gathering to a new acquisition, then we have to think, well, okay, well, if we don't acquire anything more recent, you know, over years past, and we haven't acquired another thing from that artist, what's happened in the meantime? Do we need to, to know, do we need to revisit that information? And do we go back to them? What about uh, artist burnout? There is a real concern about people getting the same questions from lots and lots of different organizations, and how are they going to feel about that? So that's Part of that reason why thinking about a shared repository so that if I gather some information and then a couple of years down the line another museum gathers this information from the same artist but it's different information that we'll have access to the most current information. So we have to figure out how, how we're going to manage that and being aware with flexibility and fluidity of this, you know, how we stay up to date with that information. In terms of the information we, we have thought about collecting at NIA, our thoughts are that we will be asking people about their gender identity and expression. Uh, and while we are asking, ask them about their pronouns so that we are sure that we are referring to them in our conversations and in anything that we write about them using their preferred pronouns, asking people to share their sexual orientation, um, about their race, culture, religious and ethnic identities and about their ability and disability status. And um, there's still some questions about how granular that information is. 
in the draft survey that we've put together, we were asking specific questions about, do you consider yourself neurotypical or neurodiverse? But I know some other museums are thinking more along the lines of saying, do you identify as disabled or not disabled? And so there are still some, some questions there that we need to grapple with about how, how granular we need to be in the asking. Sorry, what was the next thing you wanted to know? <laughs> well, a little bit about the value of assembling this information now versus previously historically. This hasn't necessarily been like a facet of data information on the creators of the artists and using collections that we typically as a field have been collecting and what the changes are now that have kind of, um, kind of lit the fire to rethink about how we've been doing some of that. Well, I, I mean, certainly societal expectations have completely changed around these topics in, in my time working in museums. So, um, you know, we, we were not thinking much beyond a gender binary and in a lot of cases making assumptions that the sort of historic canon of what was important should stand and not really questioning it at a lot of museums, which meant that that sort of preference for you know, white male Western art in many cases was what museums collected. But, you know, we are increasingly thinking about that. Uh, we are increasingly thinking about the fact that we are not necessarily the authoritative voice anymore. And that's a huge change where, you know, museums and curators in particular, but museums in general were the gatekeepers to knowledge and that we held the authoritative information about these things. We were trained, we had degrees, and we had it locked away that you could ask us and we would share it with you if we thought you were worthy. Um, but that, you know, we were the fount of knowledge. And, and I think certainly over time, early, earlier, much earlier in my career, I'd say, you know, at least 20 plus years ago, people were already questioning that very much and thinking. Well, actually, we look at these objects from many different perspectives, so we should begin capturing that information or at least sharing it. Now, I think the impetus to make that voice captured more permanently has changed because initially it was sort of, well, let's make multiple labels for this exhibition. But was that information stored of the other voices? And I think in many cases it existed on a label but didn't get into the collections information databases. So. So that's hugely changed uh, over time. Um, yeah, I mean, the main thing being just our awareness of our own um, complicity and the you know the, the the fact that we're not neutral, that we are in the choices that we make, uh, you know, sort of supporting practices that may not align with the values that we hold as museums, as nonprofits, as groups that want to be available, make art available and information available to a really huge swath of people that we want our audiences to be broad and diverse and deep. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's all in play and, and you know, publicly being called out for our behaviors um, and, and our practices. Is, has a real galvanizing effect. Yeah, and it's a balancing act. And I, I feel like you had also kind of touched on this a little bit in um, one of the articles you had written, 
where there, there are certain historic practices that we shouldn't just uh, throw out, you know, shouldn't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater, if you will, because to a certain extent um, with, you know, museums or institutions where only this information may exist, only these objects may live, cultures may not exist anymore. And so there's almost like this uh, protective quality, like an institution is the only voice this culture may have because this is the only place these things live and this is the place where scholars are that can share this information. But at the same extent, recognizing with that, that there's there's a history of bias that's been ingrained into the you know, organization itself and, and into our culture as well when we look at museums and the collections and how they've been treated and how they've been cared for. Um, and I wouldn't, I'd be interested to talk a little bit about the, the ethics of the information we are collecting because I know you had said it's really, um, there's a lot of conversations that have to happen. It's a bit of a balancing act um, and one that has to happen with a lot of compassion uh, for this very private information that we're hoping to capture about artists and creators themselves. Yeah, I think certainly what we ask and how we ask it are very important. And then and absolutely what we do with that information. And one of the, one of the concerns we had thinking about what we ask for and then sharing it, you know, we didn't want to just be gathering information so that we could say to our board and our funders, look at us, we're, we're doing this diversity, but then not, not actually share that information. So we didn't want it just to, to bolster our opinions of ourselves and pat ourselves on the back. So that's really always for, for Mia in particular been important that this is, this is an effort to share information and to make it public and to have it be a way that we can be accountable for what we're doing. But as you say, we're asking some people some very you know, sensitive information, asking them to share about their sexual orientation. They very well may not feel comfortable with doing that. And I think that's one of the things we will find out more as we actually are sending out surveys and asking people to give us their feedback. And both Mia and the, the wider group of colleagues that are participating in, in the AAMC consortium are pretty unanimous about the idea that, you know, people need to be able to opt out anytime they choose, they should not be required to fill something in, that we need to facilitate the process of gathering the information in a way that makes them feel comfortable that they can supply terminology, their own language, that they can say no, that they can feed back to us about what works and doesn't work about the process, that they have a measure of control, not only of the information, but then how we can improve are asking of the information in the future. So, yeah, um, I found that really interesting. I, I wonder how it will inform the ethics of collecting as we move forward. And I, I say that because I know recently my institution was considering an acquisition um, and we actually chose not to acquire it because it was made at a point in time in the artist's life where their mental, they had been suffering from um, dementia and their mental capacity capabilities had changed and there was no good way, no ethical way for us to contextualize this piece in the artist's overall work. And, you know, there was also a relationship with the family and the estate of the artist that we wanted to be respectful of. 
So as we start to collect information about creators and um, kind of open those paths and those conversations, I'm curious how that will inform how we collect. Maybe it would have allowed our institution to acquire the work because we would have been able to share information that the artist was comfortable with or the family was comfortable with about this particular person at that point in their life and their creative process, because we, we couldn't, we couldn't ethically do it otherwise. I'm curious to see how that will uh, shape the future. Yeah, I think that that also plays up the importance of the source of the information. So mm -hmm. one of the things that we see is very important throughout all of the information gathering is that we know where the information is coming from. So documenting whether it's directly from the artist, self-identified, whether it's someone answering for the artist, because often it could be for a living artist, a gallery or, uh, you know, an agent who gets the form and sends it back on their behalf. Um, in the situation you were mentioning, if it's, if it's a family member or for somebody non-living the estate or in the situation where someone uh, doesn't have an estate or is long past then, you know, knowing that the source information is secondhand, potentially rather than firsthand. It's, it's all very important to understanding that um, how, I don't know how, how authoritative the information is, I guess would be the right word. I think it's certainly a question that's coming up in the conversations at the AAMC group to about sharing of the information and a quantitative approach to the information sharing versus a more qualitative contextualization. And so the group is largely coming down on the side of saying, well, okay, we're gonna gather this information, but we we don't feel good about assigning the information to the person by name. That if we want to be able to say and share, we have X number of you know, people who identify as uh, you know, as African-American within the collection, then we're going to have it as an aggregate figure and not say it right next to people's names. But that, that conflicts with some of the practices that we already have. So for example, at MIA, we already for Black History Month, for example, have a presentation on our website, which says, are you interested in African-American artists? Here's a list of African-American artists and here is a selection of their artworks and something similar for essentially every uh, one of the different months. So, you know, Native American Heritage Month and LGBTQ Pride Month and Women's History Month, et cetera. So we are already doing that. So the question for us, do we stop doing that in the future? How do we manage that process? Do we ensure that the contextualized information is there. And that is a huge resource burden. Um, the Victoria and Albert Museum right now has a really good approach to their LGBTQ plus objects. And they have a group that is considering very carefully um, how to identify those works and what it means as far as presenting the works to the public online with information that suggests there's some association, either that the artist identifies as LGBTQ+, or the work deals with themes around that issue or has some meaning in that context of the community. Um, but again, that works best when there's contextualized information, but there's not enough resource to create that writing, the language that will contextualize everything. So how, how do we, moving forward, 
manage that process. It is an ethical issue, I think, but um, not one that I have an answer for. Oh, sure. I understand that. <laughs> Can't solve all the problems today, although I wish we could. <laughs> so John said that there's been some activity in the chat. Do you want to share with us, John, what questions are being asked? Yeah, so we have uh, two two very good questions that uh, I'll, I'll ask you uh, individually. So first uh, from Martina Caruso. Hi, Martina, how's it going? Um, uh, for historic artists, we often use the Getty Uland database, which was not recently updated. Maybe there should be a movement to update such resources, which are often tied to our collections databases. What's, uh, what's your response to that, Francis? Uland's a really interesting uh, ex case because the Getty does not actually research any of the data that goes into ULAN. It is all sourced from the community and it's all based on whatever citations, public published citations can be provided as the resource. So what you are using, which is we're considering, I think almost all of us consider ULAN authoritative, is not strictly authoritative data. It's like Wikipedia. It's better than Wikipedia, but <laughs> it's very similar in that regard, yeah. So, and Wikidata, same. So mm -hmm. when we uh, have been thinking in that AAMC group about a repository, ULAN came up uh, as an idea, Wikidata being another idea, but there are problems inherent in, in both of those. Wiki, Wikidata, because it's such a big community of people putting information in, it is scraping the data from a lot of different sites, including ULAN, which is, it's all linked open data and the Getty vocabularies and, and other information resources. So, so the information's going in and they want citations. Now the citations are great, but what about somebody who self-identifies? That's not a citation, that's not published. And a lot of older publishing for non-living artists falls under the biases around what information was shared and how was it shared and was that artist talked about in a specific way because the person writing didn't want to embarrass somebody or address something that was not appropriate societally at the time that the work was written. So, so many issues around publications being the resource. ULAN does not have a lot of staff working, so they are getting information in. I know that MoMA in the last couple of years has given them two large tranches of information about LGBTQ plus artists, but you know, it's not all in and it's so, yeah, quite problematic, but. Is that something where, um, sorry, just my own personal mm. follow-up question to that. Is that something where individual institutions can volunteer, like you said, MoMA, uh, like if other people have done, like if Mia goes through their survey, aggregates a lot of uh, new information, is that something they could submit to, to ULAN? Uh, according to the current rules, we would have to back it up with pub, you know, published citations. Yeah. So, so we would have to figure out a way to either meet that standard that they have built into their rules because originally this was sort of you know built on research and library work and libraries being the sources of a lot of the information that was submitted. Um, yeah. Or we'd have to get ULAN to change their rules and then we'd have to be able to be in a position to back up by some other means our the authoritative nature of our data. 
Yeah. All right. Uh, second question uh, from Alana Embry. How's it going, Alana? Um, sorry, I just know happen to know these people on here. Um, are you exploring the possibility of implementing existing data dictionaries uh, like Homosaurus in terms that are developed by or with indigenous communities like traditional knowledge labels? Uh, absolutely. And I and when I was doing the research for Mia around the terminologies, I definitely looked at Homosaurus. But Homosaurus, the last time I looked at it, um, which I think at the moment was a few months ago, it is not really structured in a way that is particularly helpful for, for what we're trying to ask at the moment. So maybe it could be developed in that direction, but I don't think right now it is a tool that could could be used out of the box for uh, Mark, us. Can you can you give a brief description of what Homosaurus is? I'm, I'm not familiar with it personally. Maybe others aren't as well. Uh, I think well, we should probably take a moment yeah. and, and look at their website and see what they say about themselves rather than saying it about them. <laughs> all right, all right. No, no problem. We'll, 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 we'll put it in the chat. Anyway, continue your, your response. Okay. Um, sorry, so we were talking about Homosaurus and what else? Um, the, and terms that are developed or with indigenous communities like traditional knowledge labels. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely think that's important. Um, what we are doing at MIA, we have a separate uh, culture authority that we developed a few years ago. And our preference is to always use the, the language and the, the, you know, the native names that people use for themselves. We set up our, our culture, you know, it's a taxonomy basically just so that we could keep track of the Western assigned name equivalents so that we would have a capability to allow people who only knew the Western names to find the information, but that as far as, as publishing that information, it should be, you know, what, what the, the individuals want to see. You know, we have some way to go uh, that question of what we do with the information that was given to us, we we need to figure out how we're going to present it. Uh, we need to to understand our own expectations as far as what we're willing to publish, because certainly Mia has a standard approach to, for example, how we do a display biography. So we usually do the nationality and we do the life dates for an individual. We are more and more including culture as well, but generally we, we fall back on the nationality as the primary and then the culture in parentheses and then the life dates. But what about people who choose not to be known by their official you know, citizenship, but want to be known by their culture? Are we happy to put the culture primarily and either you know, so, sort of put the nationality second or drop it all together? And what about people who have a different ethnicity to the predominant white ethnicity and want to say, for example, we have an artist who has asked over the years to be identified as, as African-American rather than American. And we have not to date allowed our labels to indicate that ethnicity, but maybe we need to be thinking about that. So, um, so it's, it's a question of you know, asking people to share the information with us, but then organizationally you know, being clear about what we're going to do with that information and how much we we cede control over that in in you know sort of situations where we like to have a nice sort of 
template that we use, but not everything's going to fit necessarily into the template. And what happens when people tell us something that we might think is incorrect simply because they, you know, want to play with, you know, the fact that we're asking. It has happened in, at other museums, I know, in situations where, you know, someone knows that someone is generally stating their identity around gender identity in a certain way, but then when they've been queried, you know, when they've been asked to share, they came back with something completely different, which is not what they normally say about themselves. So how, how do we react in those instances? Do we publish what we've been told, even if it goes against what we think is accurate? You know, and I put that in air quotes, accurate. Um, so a lot, and, of, a lot of questions. I mean yeah, yeah, I wanted to sort of follow up with that. I mean, like, is the problem our database? Like, do we need either more fields on the database? Do we fundamentally need to change the database? and or uh, is the database itself the analog for the problem, meaning creating a field that has to get filled out? Uh, and by filling it out, it actually creates the problem because it's something that, you know, I neatly, it, it may, or it, it might change. It might, it's fluid as we go. I'd say it's a bit of both really, yeah. you know, the, the databases were, were built because we wanted to be able to classify on structure and manage information in a certain way. But most of the collections information databases, collections management systems have some flexibility. So they'll have free text fields as well as structured fields and so there is a fair amount of capability to extend beyond the structures. We do need better ways to manage the associated information. Um, so we use TMS at, at MIA. And so I am you know, very familiar with how we can structure that information within TMS, being able to identify terms, link to authorities, identify uncertainty that is not necessarily embedded in the terms, identify the sources and the dates and, and the changes of the information over time. And some of those are easy in the structure of the system and some of them we are gonna have to sort of use fields that we can set up or you know, user assigned fields, flex fields, attributes fields, if you're a TMS user. So, so it, it is a combination of the two, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think we will see more flexibility in the way the systems are structured as we need to do more and more of this work. I see, I do think one way that we are let down by the systems is when we do want to record those multiple voices. You know, the systems are set up so that there is a, essentially a single authoritative view on what is true about a given object in a system. Um, but what about you know these multiple voices coming in? How do we how do we manage that and and show simultaneously that there are a variety of ways of thinking about objects, about individuals? And so there's probably some way forward that we can be more flexible about that within the systems, but but they're quite you know rigid in that regard because it's it's a worldview that is embedded very much in the systems. I mean, what you're describing is this whole the, the, everything that you've said is 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 about a process, right? You know, adding transparency, creating dialogue with artists, with uh, members of you know the, these 
different you know stakeholder groups uh, and and representations, and you know it sort of suggests that we have to think of the database as a process as opposed to a product, right? We think of you know once it's in the database, it's like this thing we can make reports, we can you know spit them out, but uh, none of us really. I mean, you know, I just had this idea when you're speaking that it's, it is a process. It's not a, not a product, right? Absolutely. So. And it's not something that will ever be finished yeah. because research is ongoing and the way people understand things changes over time and new information will come to light or new ways of considering something that we looked at one way 20 years ago, we may be considering from a completely different angle right now and the body of information will grow so that's absolutely the case you know they are they are very much processes and things that you know even when we think we've got a detailed record that's complete it isn't really complete well and i think it's good for especially our field to be reminded about that this is this is a living entity language changes we talked a little bit about that yesterday um, and it's an ever-evolving process, um, and oftentimes, as as keepers of of information and data, you know, data and cataloging, we want it to fit into this nice little square things. Like this is done, we've moved this process over, we've completed this. But it's it's wise, I think, to think about um, to always have that mindset. Well, this what may expand, this may develop, this may change, and to keep ourselves flexible to move along with it and. I think some of the challenges that you've been talking about today, Francis, you know, we're working within systems that are historic, have historically been structured. And I, I think about Yulon a lot because I, I relied on that heavily in my previous position. Uh, a lot of what our museum had collected were works by self-taught artists, previously called folk art, but really um, self-taught. And there, if, if Yulon is being sourced by information that's already out there and I can't expect necessarily to be finding these artists in that space as my authoritative, like, this is where I'm getting my information from, for my database to control it and, and to maintain it, to maintain that intellectual management. It's hard to do when these artists are not necessarily talked about in any way outside of that. So it's, it's interesting when you said that, that it's kind of sourced in like, well, we're, we're, we're running up against the walls of things that have historically been in place and we're trying to find ways to work outside of that and around that, but also mm -hmm. to incorporate parts of it that are still important that um, we maintain for, for our field and for our standards of best practice. So it's, it's interesting and it's kind of a nice way. Um, we've talked about some of the challenges. I was wondering if you could delve a little bit into some of the, the positives that have come out of this process and some of the achievements that have been made. Well, I think just the process of thinking about it is so important to, to know that, uh, you know, We've done things in a, in a very structured way in the past that may have limited what we recorded and what we knew and our capability to understand our artists, our collections, and ourselves, and the way we work, the way we collect, the way we exhibit. And so that, that learning opportunity has been great uh, and much needed. Um, being in a position to, to help the organization, my museum, re-examine its collecting practices. So the more information we keep, the more we can know how we're doing, what we're doing. Um, I think it's important moving forward to, to be able to 
to help people, we've mentioned this before, to see themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, in our collection, to be able to know that they are reflected. I think that's come up a lot in thinking about, um, about the portrayal of different ethnicities in society, how you know, people haven't seen themselves on television, children have not seen themselves well represented in children's books and you know, positive reflections on people. And it's so important that we provide this part of the picture to fill in gaps, because I think all of us that work in museums feel art is such an important aspect of the world that we are so you know, committed to sharing that we need to make it communicate as much of the positives as we can. And that's, that's certainly a very positive thing, but we need to also use this as an opportunity to step outside the boxes um, that we have constructed for ourselves to, to enable us to recognize the opportunities that exist and then to, to really build on those opportunities. Yeah, and I think a bit like in terms of institutional mission and, and what your organizations are setting out to do, especially as we look towards the future, um, that re-examining not only what we're collecting, but the information around it is a really important step and maybe not always a very evident one. You know, it's easy to see like, this is what we have in the collection by these people or these artists or these cultures, but, and here's what we don't, right? Here's where we want to grow that or, or look and research that. But the information we keep is just as important, um, if not more so, because it informs so much of what we do, the research we put out, um, the information we share, and how that gets disseminated to the public we serve. Um, I'm curious, oh, before I ask my final question, John, is there any more any more questions coming through the chat that we want to make sure we get to? Um, no, it's just some some commentary. Um, you know, someone had asked, but they, they came in late. We kind of been dancing around this idea of like how to address uh, fluid um, uh, ways of identifying uh, mm -hmm. themselves. So that that is the question, right? And you've kind of been addressing that in many ways. That it's it is a a process, an ongoing thing. Um, then uh, Alana had followed up, yeah, and and was thankful for the the response. Um, and was wondering about the actual application of some of the data terms, uh, recognizing that it gets complex quickly. She was the one that asked about the, um, what was the term she used? The uh, traditional knowledge labels. Um, so, and then, yeah, go ahead. I was just wondering, I'm not clear on what, what she is thinking about as far as the application of the terms. Um, well, maybe she can uh, respond. Um, yeah, and then, you know, uh, it was also pointed out that uh, Yulon and, um, is, is, is consistently been a problem and, uh, and that it's generally a, a Western view that's portrayed through it. So Yeah, I mean, it, certainly you can see that uh, who's in Yulon, as you were saying, Amanda, you know, the self-taught artists, there are many artists of other ethnicities that are not represented at all. Well, and then like the preferred terms that are used, I often felt like between a rock and a hard place because the artist mm -hmm. is, the preferred term is is American, but um, I know the artist is African-American, mm -hmm. um, but I don't know, I don't know how they want to be identified. So I always had to default to the, because that was our policy, so I defaulted to that practice, but, um, you know, being able to explore that more deeply 
with the data we collect is, is, is an excellent opportunity yeah. to kind of give a little bit more voice to the creators we're collecting. But also there's sort of like multiple ways of identifying someone might be Absolutely. first generation something. So I, I, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's an ongoing thing. Um, well, ongoing, but it's also, it's not singular. That's what I meant to say. Absolutely. Intersectionality is totally important. And mm-hmm. you know, so giving people the opportunity to, um, one of the things, as I was mentioning with the survey, giving people the opportunity to say, well, all right, what's missing? What, what, what do you want us to know too that we haven't asked you about is important. So if someone sees that that is, you know, something that they feel is important about who they are that they want to share with us, then then we need to, you know, take that in and and embrace that sharing and then, you know, use that to extend our own understanding of of what identity means and then how we might want to record it. So. Mm. Well, we've got just a few minutes left and um, we can wrap up and talk a little bit about what the future might look like. Uh, but I did want to just ping something that you had, you both had been talking about earlier with like the kind of the limitations of um, our databases in terms of the information we're trying to collect and looking to collect and how that may evolve. And when we talk about diversity, you know, we're talking a lot today about capturing information about the artists in our collections or the creators in our collections, but there's a, a vast way that we can explore diversity and I often think about the type of collection holdings we have. You know, if you're in an encyclopedic institution, you have traditional media like paintings and sculpture and what have you that fit very nicely into the way a lot of our databases are structured. But you also have other works um, that, uh, you know, are utilitarian objects that were very meaningful or powerful to particular cultures. And there's elements about cataloging those works that differ vastly from how we would traditionally catalog um, a painting or something like that. And so I look forward to how the future will evolve in terms of that information as well, because I feel like there's a lot of limitations in terms of our database products that are out there or collection management systems uh, in capturing those types of things. But that kind of leads in to looking towards the future. And I'm curious from your perspective, Francis, how, how you may see certain things evolving um, for the museum field. Um, well, just to touch on what you were just saying, I think one of the ways that we can really evolve is to do more sharing of information. So around indigenous voices and, and hearing more about them in, in different ways, the Mukutu um, system, which I don't have a link to, but uh, is bringing together information with, with around indigenous objects and the stories and the voices of indigenous peoples and those of us who hold objects by indigenous peoples could you know share information more i think things opportunities to link our data globally you know can be extended and explored more and more you know once information is out there people rarely want to step back from it. So I think it's likely that instead of deciding that we'll capture less information, we're just going to find ways to capture more and more information about identity and and ways to understand and link and um, that people will expect more from us as a result, you know, expectations around what people can do and know 
just grow over time. I think there's going to be continued scrutiny and museums will be required to, to have uh, ongoing and increasing transparency about the way we work. Um, we absolutely need to diversify ourselves as well as our collections and um, continue the work internally to understand the roles that we play in supporting and creating diverse societies and how we can underpin that. Um, I think we will be able to influence the systems providers and the people who design our websites to, to give us capabilities to have more flexibility, to bring more voices in on an equal level, not to have the authoritative museum voice and then here's uh, what somebody else who is not trained and therefore less important thinks, but, but really seeing the different viewpoints and being able to share them and being able to preserve those viewpoints over time, uh, I think is quite important. And you know, for those of us who oversee collections databases, if it's not in the database, and my experience certainly is that, you know, if it's on the website, that's great. But if the content doesn't make it into the database, then it doesn't stay connected to the information around the objects going forward, because we know we're going to use this source of information, the collections database, as an ongoing uh, trove of knowledge that we are going to maintain and build on and preserve. But the, the content that's on the website is often seen as just ephemeral. So we need to make sure that all those other voices you know, embed in the historic information that we're capturing and that they're, that we take them forward. So, you know, encouraging the systems providers to give us as much flexibility to be able to, to address our evolving way of working is going to be really important. And can I ask one other thing? It's, mm. um, you know, there's been some, some of the comments have uh, on, on the chat have, alluded to that, you know, people are, are actively trying to make these improvements in their databases. And um, mm -hmm. is there a place where people can go to find any sort of best practices? Or is that, you know, that's what the Slack channel is for? I mean, there's probably not one source, but uh, I mean, it is the moving target that we're discussing, right? But what, what where, where should we be going to as a reference? Well, in terms of the, the work around, you know, the diversity, um, information gathering and, and the idea of having a survey for living artists to be able to self-identify the work that the AAMC is doing is going to be published. So hopefully there will be mechanisms and ways for people to feed into that conversation going forward as soon as they have something to share, which should be in the next few months. Um, we've been working on it since the beginning of last year with all the conversations. And now we're <clears throat> excuse me, we're going through the best practices and making sure they make sense, that they give people, you know, a complete picture of what they want. There is also this Slack channel, which um, came out of a Zoom meeting that my colleague Jeremy Monroe at the National Museum of African Art at the Smithsonian um, held July 2020. And there were about 120 of us that were on that call. So I don't know if anybody listening in right now was on that call as a response to that sort of gathering of people together with interest. Uh, the Slack channel was put up and, and Jay Molino, who's our colleague at MoMA, is very kindly hosting that Slack channel. So that's an opportunity to go in and see 
some of the things that have been said, there's, it's a little less active at the moment than it has been, but um, I, some of us have shared on that Slack channel um, examples of the forms that we're using. So you can take a look at those, see what you think. When the best practice comes out from the AAMC group, you can begin thinking about that. Uh, the thing I've come to realize through all of this work is really that we are all coming to it from different places and our organizations and our, the individuals involved will have different specific concerns and sensitivities. And so ultimately, even though we want as a museum community to come up with ideas about how we should approach this, the specifics really need to be dealt with at the individual institutional level. It needs to be discussed, it needs to be supported at the highest levels of the organization. It needs to be embedded in practice and policy. But what it looks like at each individual institution is probably going to vary. So I would not wait to see what everybody else is doing. It's great, but I think we know that with our own you know, reports and forums, it's great to see examples, but then, oh, what we really need is just this, slightly different. So it's gonna be similar in my, in my perception in this situation as well. So be having those conversations and be thinking about the ways that it matters to your organization and how you get the leadership on board to make, make it happen because it's a, it's a long-term commitment to a, a way of working that really is what we're talking about. Well, that's excellent, Francis. Thank you so much for coming on today and joining yeah. us and sharing so much Thank of your you. experience. It's been excellent. Yeah, my um, pleasure. And I'm on that uh, Slack channel as well. If anybody wants to get in touch or you can contact me at Mia. It's just uh, flloyd-baines at artsmuir.org. Excellent. And we'll make sure we can, if you're, if you're okay with it, while well, I ask you over this yeah. public forum to drop yeah. your email. Arc says 1,500 members. We're going to send them all your email. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Just kidding. <laughs> well, this has been great. Thank you again. And uh, thanks to everyone who participated today. If you have, you know, keep the chat going if you'd like, and we can try and get back to any questions you have. But the podcast will come out this Friday. Fingers crossed. Uh, so look for it wherever you get your Apple podcasts. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks so much. Y'all take care.